For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Impact of Influence, the Murdoch family murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. We are so grateful that you've decided to spend some time with us. You have a lot of choices, and when you spend it with us, it's much appreciated. If you want to reach out to Matt Harris or Seton Tucker, you go to the Murdoch Podcast Facebook page, MurdochPodcast.com, or Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com in studio today was our legal analyst, John Snyder, actually in Dwayne's groove shack today. Hello, hello everyone. Hello. Hello. I, uh, I guess we'll start with, uh, some heat we expected to get, or I expected to get because of the Dick Harputlian comments last episode where I May not have been clear enough in what I said, but I was ranting a little bit at how I was upset that Dick Harputlian, who is Alec Murdoch's lawyer, was getting a lot of grief for defending Alec. And so that brings us to Seton. Let's uh, hear the complaints you've got over there. So we did get a listener question from Catherine, and she says, this comment is just for Matt because I noticed he commendably took full ownership of his support of the defense slash Harputlian. Some South Carolinians are going to disagree, and it has nothing to do with him taking on a hard case. It has more to do with his character. It has to do with him knowingly giving false statements to the press, i.e., he told the media the wrong hospital Alec Murdoch was staying in after the roadside shooting. I'm not going to say he needed to give the real name. I'm saying he didn't have to lie. Y'all should care about this stuff. You had Trooper Moore on your podcast. Great episode, by the way. Dick Carpootlian treated his story with callousness and didn't even want to hear him speak, saying, it's just going to be the same old song. I'm not saying he needs to care about victims. I'm saying that if he wants any kind of public support or even the opportunity to be fairly and or slightly compared to Atticus Finch, he needs to pretend to care about the marginalized society that Alec Murdoch took advantage of. Matt's going to get a lot of pushback on this one, and I hope mine is the worst. I do like y'all's approach, which yeah. thank you for that. Uh, and Mary Kay says, I believe your comments on Dick Carpoolian criticism are disingenuous at best. The criticism is in the corruption that exists given the inordinate power state legislator lawyers have over judges in South Carolina, a system within which he has greatly benefited. It is not about providing criminal defense. The reference to kill a mockingbird is absurd. Also, you recognize that money is also a determining factor in our justice system. It should not be. Is especially egregious when the money used for defense was stolen from vulnerable individuals. Finally, I don't remember you taking time to criticize Saputlian for his recorded misogynistic comments or his balance. I don't know anything about the misogynistic comments. Maybe I wasn't very clear. I was specifically saying about Dick Carpootlian's defense being criticized or being criticized that he tried to file this motion or that motion or the technique in which he has defended. Alec, that is all I'm talking about. I don't know about 
I don't know how he's voted on different issues. I don't know about the comment you uh, mentioned there or what he said about truth. I was specifically saying about defending Alec Murdoch in and of itself does not deserve criticism. I do remember the Trooper Moore thing, and I remember being kind of offended by that. But again, I was trying to specifically say about Harputlian and defense. And when we were talking about Atticus Finch and John Adams, we weren't comparing Dick Harputlian to them. We were comparing the the role of a defense attorney, generically speaking, right? I think it's more the, the societal role that defense counsel provide, which is a key function of the adversarial process that we have in our country. So everybody should be getting a plus service. Like everybody deserves that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's how I feel. And so that even a, Jeffrey Dahmer, everybody's entitled to the best defense they can get because their jobs to hold the state accountable, to make sure that the guys that really did nothing wrong are protected. And that then the people that did do something wrong that they're treated with with compassion and justice. And so that's all I was referring to on the Harputlian getting grief for the defense. And I also am not sure, like when he said about Alec Murdoch and the hospital, I don't know if he was lying or he misspoke or what the case was. Or maybe he was confused. I mean, that one didn't bother me as as much because where they are, you basically are going to go to either Savannah or Charleston, you kind of have a 50-50 chance of going to either one, and it could have just been confusion. But I think attorneys do have an obligation not to lie. I think they have an obligation to be truthful. You, you have, he, he's got a, he's only as good as the information he's provided mm-hmm. on, on things like that. So that point when he's talking about what hospital he is or isn't at, he's listening to this guy that's, that, that we'll find out in a few months later is like on top of this massive criminal scheme. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's plenty of other things to complain about him about yeah, sure. yeah, than yeah, yeah. what hospital he said somebody was at. But Okay, okay enough about Dick Arpulian. Okay, so let's move on to the jailhouse tapes. We've talked about this previously. There were some tapes that were released from Alec Murdoch talking to friends and families while he's been in the Alvin S. Glenn Detention Center. And Alec Murdoch is suing the director of the Alvin S. Glenn Detention Center, where he's being housed, and also the Richland County Government Center, um, because he says that these tapes should not have been released and they are possibly affecting his ability to get a fair trial. We now have a motion from the ACLU of South Carolina, and they want to file a brief of amicus curate. Is that how you say Curate. John, let's start off. What what is this? So so basically in high profile cases where interest groups have they want to see a particular outcome, they will file a motion with the court to ask if they can file a brief uh in in favor of or opposed to uh what's going on in the case. And so amicus curiae basically means friend of the court. You see this a lot in constitutional litigation. You know, there's a whole practice uh, dedicated to appellate uh, briefs that are that are specifically towards. They're not a party in the case. They don't have, but none of their specific rights are being affected. They have an opinion that they want to share with the court on what they think should happen in this kind of case. 
So do you think it's appropriate for the ACLU to file a brief supporting Elk's claims that his 14th Amendment rights were violated by the release of these tapes prior to his hearing? I think I think it's appropriate for them to file it. And I think one thing about you, and a lot of times people confuse when you say it's appropriate to file is different than you saying it's going to win or not win. You've, you've done it with a, uh, other cases, I noticed, where I get what you're saying. You say, like, whoever filed what, you're like, okay, it's appropriate. But that doesn't mean you, you think that it's a winning thing or it's a good thing, but it's appropriate. I, I think it, that's right. I, I think it, it's just something that happens in other cases. Yes. Do I think the ACLU is the vanguard of free speech that they used to be? No. And so I find it interesting that here they want to get involved and, and say, hey, his civil rights are being violated because private information is being released publicly. This is more of their traditional function than they've been engaged in historically the last couple of years. I, well, I, and when you have a, and I'm not saying they're doing it, if this is, like you said, it's appropriate. When you have a high profile case and you want to make a point of your organization, you want to glom onto that so you get your attention. And, and that's right. And, and, and in all these other cases in the Supreme Court and all that, they are, they are wanting to show their donor base like, right. hey, we really care about your, your civil rights or we really care about the economic impact of, of law X. It's, it, it's all part of the kind of law industry. And fundraising. And fundraising for uh, when with these friends of the court briefs. So it's political. It, they're 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 making a political stand here. It it won't affect any substantial right. It won't. I, I'm sure that whatever brief that they're writing isn't going to be any different than what his own attorneys are writing. But but they are they are welcome to have an opinion. I gotcha. I think you've weighed in on this whether you think it is a violation of his rights, and we also have this uh, balance between what the public's right to know is. Again, let's let's kind of go over what you think is the, the right thing. Uh, when I look at a case, I'm coming at this case from the prosecutor's idea of I don't want there to be anything that upsets my conviction. Any kind of appeal possibility. Any, I want to eliminate any when, – when this jury stands up and reads their decision and says guilty, I want to make sure that stands. And so – the, the release of these tapes and the fact that the ACLU is involved and all that makes me nervous about, is this going to somehow bar their ability to get the conviction? That's really my perspective on, on, on this stuff specifically, because is this release of information being done to embarrass him? Is it actually going to Amper's ability to get a full defense. And it's like, I don't, I only care about that because I don't, if he did this stuff, he needs to be held accountable. And I don't want some screw up in the process to undermine the conviction. You don't want that to be the reason he gets off. Or retrial. And and it's the same thing where we're going to talk a little bit here in a second about the shirt. Before we get to that, this is all related to his ability to get a fair trial. After that, let's say he ends up being convicted for crimes and he's in jail and he's having phone conversations with friends and family. If he is found guilty, are those calls fair game? That, the, and that's the, 
my position while unpopular with some of our listeners has been, I don't think they should have ever been released. I just, I think unless someone's in the commission of a crime or it's specifically related to the case itself, I don't think it should go anywhere. I actually was talking to a friend about this yesterday and I said, you know what, if, if that is fair game, I should just start doing a whole bunch of FOIA requests to people in jail that we think maybe they're having interesting conversations. Right. Like somebody in the neighborhood gets arrested for their stuff. That's happened. So I, I think, and I think that's why the ACLU is stepping in. And my guess is maybe the South Carolina legislature, when they, when they come back, they might take action on this to say, hey, this is the only time that tapes can be released. Okay. So let's move on to the hearing that was held on Friday, December 9th. And this was to address several of the motions that were filed by Ellick's defense team. The first thing I noticed at the hearing that Ellick was not shackled. So, John, do you think the extreme media attention influenced the court's decision to unshackle Ellick for a pretrial hearing? No, I think it goes back to what, what I was just saying is you don't want to do anything. When, when this case is over, they want it to be over. They, so they don't want to say... They don't want some appellate judge coming back and saying, well, he, should, he shouldn't have been shackled. Therefore, we order a new trial or we do this or that. And technology, just because we don't see shackles on him doesn't mean that he doesn't have you know, ankle monitor, shock belt. There's plenty of things out there that can be worn under clothing that will uh, make sure no one moves very fast once a button is pushed. Okay. Besides the shackling that stood out was that Alex kind of grew his hair back in for those who haven't seen it. He's got, uh, had a suit on. He looked per- more like a lawyer than he did in previous hearings. Yeah. And that's, and that's something that's important. I, I think good, good lawyers instruct their clients to come to court. I would always tell kids, I'm like, come and look like you either work, that you're supposed to be sitting at the table with me in a professional way. And a lot of, you know, I kept a blazer and a tie in my office for my clients so that when you come to court, that because you, you want to look different than everybody else looks um, in a positive way. Well, I, also, especially jury trial type things or these things which are going to be seen by potential jurors. I heard a defense attorney once, I think it was Mark Garagos, talking about how already just the fact that the person has been indicted and is sitting at the defense table, the jury almost always, and this doesn't mean they don't come out with the right thing, says that person's guilty. You know, in their mind, not like I'm going to convict them, but they're starting off. You're behind in the blocks, like, the block. like, yeah. a, like in a race. And, and I, I had a civil trial where we lost, and, the, and one of the jurors said, we didn't like that your client came to, came to court in a polo shirt. We felt like if he was, if, if he really cared about what was happening, he would dress up for a court. But, but again, that's my, again, a- anecdotal evidence, but there's probably some cycle. Yeah. There's probably right. actual evidence that when you dress nicely, people will think better of you. Sure. So don't want him in a jumpsuit. Correct. Of a trial. Yeah. Or a judge, or a jury. Had to have this conversation with my own children that, you know, really how you present <laughs> yes. yourself. You, if you just wear a ratty t-shirt, you, it's not going to be as good of a look as if you go for a job interview looking Somewhat professional. Well, it's interesting also because your dad is an attorney and he went with you to one of the motions or trials or whatnot. 
and you guys were on vacation, but he put on his, you know, blazer and tie and all that. That's how he appears in court, even if he's just in the audience. Absolutely. <laughs> what do we have next? Okay. So the first thing that was addressed at this hearing was the motion to compel filed by the defense. Among other things, the defense was seeking to get communications between prosecution and expert witnesses, and they would like to interview these witnesses under oath. Um, this is all related to the shirt that Alec was wearing on the night of the murders of Maggie and Paul. Uh, the existence of spatter is under dispute, and Creighton Waters, with the prosecution, really seemed to be willing to give the evidence, and this motion was granted. So first question for you, John, is do you think it is appropriate to grant this motion? I, I do think it's appropriate. The defense should have all the communication between the investigator and the analyst so that they can get a full picture of what the scope was of the testing and what the appropriateness may may have been of those conversations. Because if it turns out that Analyst calls up law enforcement and says, man, I got nothing. And law enforcement says, no, no, go back and do it again. See what mm -hmm. you can come up with. That's an exculpatory conversation for the defense. And they have a right to that. Okay. Especially if it's in an email written down. Yeah. yeah. You know, they talk about this PowerPoint presentation. Why is this not considered work product? Which PowerPoint are you talking about? Can you get well, me, Stephen? Because I forget. What is there was a PowerPoint presentation, I guess, between the prosecution and the expert kind of talking about this. I, I don't know. We haven't seen it. So their whole thing, they said it wasn't work product. They, they, I think initially they're like, you can't have this. And then I think this started to kind of leak out. I think there's no way they can't provide this because mm -hmm. it's, it's like, well, here's what you could say, or that's different than, so you got, you think of it this way. Law enforcement's job is to gather information, period. The prosecution's job is to then analyze the material against the legal standard to decide whether to prosecute or not. Mm -hmm. Law enforcement's job is not to gather evidence that could be used to Third get case? someone. Law enforcement is supposed to be a neutral party mm -hmm. they're just gathering the facts get and then to the truth get to the truth then the then the prosecutor is the one that goes through and says we don't have enough evidence here you know go, keep keep asking people what happened not law enforcement saying hey you know those blood results ah, those aren't quite good enough can you go back and maybe do a little bit of this here and a little bit of that there because we need to get this result i think that's what the defense is contending. And so I think here, sunlight is the best cure to say, no, no, here, here are the conversations between the investigator and the analyst. You guys can see it all. And then you can cross-examine us about it at trial. So they could do like it also, it would be like, you have an eyewitness. I, I didn't see him there. And the police go, are you really, really sure you didn't see him there? It really would help us if you, if you just really think hard. Yes, and 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 then defense counsel could be could say, now the first time law enforcement asked you about this, you said I didn't see anything. That, that's right. And did you have any other conversations? Yes. And what were you told in those conversations? They asked me if I could really, really think it again because I'm sure I saw somebody. Yeah. <laughs> and what did you say then? I still didn't see anything. Or 
or I was like, well, maybe I saw something. <laughs> yeah. And is that why you're here today? Yes. Right. So, okay. okay. That's, that's that, the road they go down. That's the road they go down. And that's why it's, that's why it's important. Again, the process is so important for the state to do it right straight out of the box mm-hmm. so that when somebody's convicted, everybody's satisfied. And when, when somebody doesn't get charged, we, we all say, okay, that's because the standards weren't met. Okay. So from my uh, view of watching this hearing, it seemed like the prosecution was requesting this information so that they could set up the ex- shirt being excluded from evidence based on that they can't conduct independent testing because the shirt was essentially destroyed by the testing that the state did. Uh, John, do you think that the shirt will be excluded? I I have concern about the waste that occurred in the analysis that leaves no room for the defense to do their own analysis because of the process that the state decided to use in concluding that it, that it was blood spatter. There's no way for the defense to have any material to prove that it wasn't. So once all the, they get all the information, they'll probably make that argument that it should not be included. Yes. And I think, I think the reason that the, the state has filed the motion in limine pre-trial is what you don't want to have happen is you're in the middle of trial. You bring out expert why you start asking them questions. Defense says objection. We'd like to, we'd like to void dire on this, on the, on the admissibility of this piece of evidence. Do you want to take care of it before it's in front of a jury? The, the prosecution wants to take care of it beforehand yeah. because the defense absolutely wants to ring that bell to say, I can't wait to cross-examine this guy to be like, isn't it true that you had to go back and revise your results? Yes. Isn't it true that you destroyed the evidence in the process of revising your results? Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, that's reasonable doubt. Right. Well, do we think there's more evidence that we haven't seen that the prosecution has? I mean, that that's a big question in my mind because obviously the defense has brought up this shirt that they're, you know, probably gonna try to get kicked out. Is there more evidence that the prosecution has that we just don't know about yet? I, I would assume uh, there has to be one. And then two, they're required to turn everything over to the defense and if the defense isn't talking about it, it may not be very helpful to their case. I can't imagine that the sole crux of their case is micro dots of blood spatter. Like if that's the only nexus between his involvement in the murder, I I would be doubtful. Again, they took so long to charge. Mm-hmm. So I would assume that there's there's plenty of other evidence that that they have, and they and we're just not talking about it because there's no issue with it and how they did it or how they gathered it. It's kind of uh, what you uh, said was the same with our our body bags uh, podcast host guest Joseph Scott Morgan we had on. He was a forensic scientist a few episodes ago, and I advise you to go listen to that because you'll you'll, you'll dig it. The guy's cool, but he he's a he he was of the same mindset that. If something's being tested by the prosecution, it needs to be able to be tested by the defense. Otherwise, it is not a 
fair deal because they just used their person. It, I know? mean, it, it's fair. You can examine them, but you can certainly drive home the fact, well, did you know this would destroy okay, destroy yeah. this? Yes. Was this a second? Like, you tested it again. Yes. Did you know there wouldn't be any left over? Well, that's how we have to do it. Okay, well. Now we got nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't have anything. <laughs> yeah. The second half of the hearing really dealt with Alex's motive for killing Maggie and Paul. The state filed a motion in limine to admit evidence that relates to Alex's motive and also the defense's motion for a bill of particulars. Creighton Waters, with the prosecution, argued first, and he laid out Alex's motive. Um, much of it had to do with Alex's financial crimes and how they were kind of coming to a head with the pending boating litigation. Uh, Waters argued that Alec had 10 years of stealing, which culminated in the deaths of Maggie and Paul. We also hear about how Alec was confronted by a bookkeeper at his law firm about missing attorney fees on the day of Maggie and Paul's murder. Uh, this conversation was interrupted because Alec got a call about his ailing father, who consequently had lent him a lot of money in the past. He kind of describes the situation with the walls crumbling in with all these white-collar crimes, which led to the murders of Maggie and Paul. And a quote from the hearing was, the day of reckoning was upon him, and he was out of cards to play. And then we hear from Griffin with the defense, and he argues that you can't just say our client's a bad guy, and it doesn't fit the acid test for a relevancy under Rule 404B. And want to get with John about that, but first what old John Snyder nailed uh, on one of our episodes was that the motion for bill of particulars was going to be denied. It was, it's an old bill of particulars done used in South Carolina or North Carolina, much for that matter. Snyder tried to pull it off and it was rejected um, well. because yeah, you are, it's <laughs> worth a shot. Um, so uh, judge Newman asked both sides to submit briefs before Christmas, arguing their case before issuing a decision on these various motions. And the, the, the big one, of course, is the 404B, explain 404B generically, and then we'll bring it in specific. Okay, so, so 404B is a, is a universal rule of evidence in every state and in federal court, and it basically says character evidence is not admissible to prove conduct. The exception is other crimes. In Alex's trials on financial transactions, his other financial transactions would be admissible. You could you could say he took money from this client, he took money from that client, he took money from that client. That would be admissible. What Griffin is arguing is the allegations that he's taken money from other people is not admissible to prove that he murdered his son and his wife. Because, and we, I think we nailed this in the last episode or whatever episode it was, that the basic defense argument is there's not a straight line, right, from the, the, the stealing of people's money to the murders. So, so all you're doing is just spending a day in court saying how he's a bad guy. Where's the tie-in? And that's what they're arguing. Well, and it goes back to what you were saying about this guy, this idea that well, you're sitting there next to a defense lawyer. You might have done something. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're trying to get a conviction through insinuation, which is not how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to be you, you get a conviction through evidence that, a, that is applied to this 
the law. And I was on court TV talking about that. And I had talked to you just before I went on the other attorneys that, that were on the show with me is I thought an important part of prosecution was bringing up was he just wanted to delay the everything falling in around Alec. It wasn't saying that he did it because no one would ever find out because that wouldn't make any sense. Of course, it's going to come out. So they were, I thought they were very careful in saying this was just a delay. Give Alec some sympathy. Then he could start that shell game again with moving money around. Was that as important as I think it was? That's what the, that's what the prosecution argued. But I do think that there is the where's the beef moment, mm -hmm. which is, sure, he was in a lot of trouble. But being in a lot of trouble isn't the same as murdering your wife and your child. I was watching Good Morning America the other day, and their legal analyst, Dan Abrams, said that he thought the, the motive was kind of weird, being that it was to get sympathy and distract attention, I guess, from the financial crimes. Uh, this is definitely different than what we have heard or read about in a lot of our local papers. What, John, do you think of this assessment? So I've watched that also. I'm going to assume that there's a lot more evidence. What the state has, we've only gotten just a little glimpse into through these motions and that, that they have a rock solid case. Uh, Abram's interpretation was, oh, you know, the only reason he murdered his wife and, and son was to create a distraction from the the noise around the financial crimes. I, I don't think that's what Waters was saying, but I but that is a very defense lawyer opinion. And then I do think that him then saying, well that actually the motive that they gave is a defense strategy. The defense will come in and say all they have is the fact that things were going bad for him in this other area of his life. Therefore, he must have committed murder. So I thought Abrams was making maybe Harputlian's argument for him on Good Morning America. And Abrams is commenting, like, we have done a lot on this podcast on what we know or what he knows. As you just said, there could be a lot more, but just on this is what he's commenting, commenting on. That's right. So that's important to remember that this isn't him saying the whole case is shot to hell. He's just saying there's a leap from stealing money and shooting your son in the face. Well, right. And part of what makes doing this and the reason they, we do this, the reason they cover it is it's fascinating. And so when we hear the state get up and start to give, you know, a little, a little bit, you know, kind of show their slip a little bit of what, what, what the, what the case is going to uncover. We find that maybe there's a bigger chasm between what we think the evidence will be and then mm -hmm. what it is. And, and that, but that's, that is in my mind, a defense lawyer oriented anti state prosecution viewpoint that, Oh, well that I'm, I'm Dan Abrams and I'm, I'm thinking that's kind of a weak argument and that that actually helps the defense. Mm. Well, if we don't have any 
if of all the evidence is just circumstantial, like it's just these financial crimes, which may or may not be let in to be determined. And we don't have the shirt. If the shirt gets thrown out, could that be a problem? You have a body. You have projectiles that are in the body. And I would assume that there's all kinds of other forensic evidence. There's going to be footprints. There's going to be shell casings. There's going to be fingerprints. There's going to be, you know, evidence that bleach was, it it, it could be, there's all kinds of evidence of him covering up a murder that took place. And so they may argue, yes, there was not, we don't have a bloody shirt because he had an hour and a half to get rid of the bloody shirt. And so he put on another shirt and there was still blood on that. I think there's an easy way to close the argument and there's, I would assume plenty of evidence. The defense will come in and say, yes, there were, there were, there were casings everywhere because everybody loved to come out there to shoot their gun. And you know, that that's the defense lawyer's job to say, there were all kinds of footprints here. I worked on a case early nineties with it was a police officer had murdered somebody down in Monroe and it came down to a shoe print and there were only two people, uh, in that area that had that type of shoe. And one of them was a retired officer and the other was his son. And his son happened to be in the area where, uh, the young lady went missing. They didn't have evidence of him pointing a gun at her and pulling the trigger, Mm -hmm. but they had all this other evidence to say, but for this guy, there, there's no other human being that could have committed this murder but this person. Was and he found guilty? He was found guilty. What do you think the chances of the financial crimes being admitted into evidence in the murder trial? I'm going to assume that there's a link that's clearer than what we have right now to show some you know, phone calls, cell phone records, something else that shows the connection. Even if they're not admitted, that doesn't mean he can't be convicted of murder. It just means it's going to be a shorter case focused on the evidence of what was found at Moselle. I guess one of the big things is going to be the timeline and the conversations with Chris Wilson, who was part of the $790,000 or whatever that he found out about that day. And his two calls or four calls, whatever it was, to Chris Wilson. I think that's going to be a huge part, right? And also the uh, caretaker, what time uh, he showed up at the house. Well, and another thing that that Creighton Waters with the prosecution brought up during this hearing was what Ellick did when first responders arrived at the scene. He was quickly trying to say that this had something to do with the boating crash litigation. And that's the reason why Maggie and Paul were killed. Why then they brought that up as a reason to use the financial crimes motive? I don't understand the tie in there. I mean, we know that the boating, there was going to be a, a hearing two days, I think it was after the murders. And it wasn't, he wasn't going to have to reveal his finances at that time. It was a hearing to determine whether he mm-hmm. would have to be, whether he would have to give that information. Right. Uh, in that case, we have evidence that we've, we've seen in the civil case where he arrives at the hospital. He starts trying to manipulate, according to the, the allegations, he's, he's trying to manipulate the victim's 
of the boat crash, mm-hmm. the law enforcement that was there to investigate the boat crash, and emergency personnel that were tending to his son and his friends. Mm-hmm. And so they may say Alex's MO is to come in and try to affect the gathering of evidence. The He's trying to twist and turn crime scenes. Well, another kind of thing that they seem to bring up as almost a pattern was this Labor Day botched suicide shooting thing that, you know, they kind of tried to say he was he was under pressure that day of this Labor Day situation because he had been confronted by his law firm. So the two days that he was confronted, he was confronted the day of Maggie and Paul's murder because of the financial crimes. And then he was confronted again on the day of this murder suicide or right before it right it was yeah right shortly before, before that i mean i don't know if you could say two two times or a pattern but I, I it seemed to me maybe that was what they were trying to go for again i believe they will have stronger evidence than we're aware of but if that is the total scope they'll have trouble on bringing that stuff in solely to secure the conviction in the murder case. Okay, but they want to bring in, going back a little bit, do they want to bring in that he said it was the boating, one of the boating people? Can they start saying, okay, like you just mentioned, what he did at the hospital, uh, when Gloria Satterfield fell, he got to this, this scene really quickly and started talking about the dogs and went into town and talked, did all this stuff, right, to, to, to allegedly manipulate all that. There was Murdoch's allegedly involved right after Stephen Smith. Um, but so there's, is it opening the door by saying he, look what he does. It, that, that gets into one of the exceptions to 404B, which is common plan or scheme that this is how he always operates when he's doing, when he's doing bad things, mm-hmm. he does a bad thing. And then he immediately goes into, oh, don't go in there. You know, that that's where the dogs were and don't do this. Like. Oh, mm. this, I don't know where the cell phone is. Oh, it happens to be in the woods. Like he's, he's trying to manage the crime see the crime investigation because that's what he did with the beach uh, case. That's what he's, that's what he's done. And all these other things he has, he has impeded law enforcement from discovering what really happened. Hmm. And at the end of the hearing, they did discuss uh, taking the picture of Elk's grandfather down, which was hanging in the courtroom, and that they decided that that would be appropriate. And so the picture of Elk's grandfather in the Colleton County Courthouse will be removed. And both agreed, both sides agreed to that. Yes. You don't, again, like you said, that's another reason. You don't want that one thing. Being I think a, it's appropriate. Oh. I think it's, I mean, it, it's, it's wildly traditional to have the, the picture up that's that's normal courthouses across the country have past judges and 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 prosecutors pictures portraits up that's normal uh but in this case with him and and part of the part of the case is the influence and the activity of using his name to accomplish a desired end to benefit him only mm-hmm. i think it's appropriate and he said they've it mentioned it's been done in some other cases around the country. We do have a deadline approaching as far as death penalty, right? 
Yes, the hearing starts on January 23rd or scheduled to start. And I believe a decision on whether the death penalty will be sought has to be 30 days in advance of the trial. Is that correct, John? That's right. So we're going to have a lot fall into place here before Christmas. Yeah, we'll see what these briefs say. They should be interesting. Uh, If you want to reach out to us, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, MattHarrisPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you, John Snyder, for coming into studio, our legal analyst. And thank you, producer Dwayne. Always does a fabulous job at making us sound somewhat intelligent. (laughs) And uh, we're always grateful. And we'll talk soon. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident? That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave four-year vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 